Good morning, Faith Presbyterian Church. Today's reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. In the Pew Bible, it's found on page 877. In the following Jesus Bible, it's found on page 1126. The reading of God's Word. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will not give I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. For the the dismissal of children, each week we offer an age-appropriate time of worship for children aged six months to incoming first graders. If your children would like to participate, our children's director, Brittany Rucker, who's in the back, and a volunteer are waiting. Uh, There's Savannah and Leslie to take them across the other building. If you're visiting with us for the first time, you'll want to accompany your child so that they can register with our ministry volunteers. And now we're going to have our sermon. See, Todd, I can do it. (laughs) I want to introduce Kevin Brown. Uh, Kevin Brown has been a friend of this church since we were a church, and even before we were a church, at the other church. He was a uh, director of Trinity Christian Community, one of the uh, missions we supported in New Orleans. Uh, Prior to that, his father started Trinity Christian Community. In fact, his father was pastor at Covington Presbyterian Church when we left at the church building and came over here. So it's been a long relationship, and I want to welcome you, Kevin. Kevin is now at uh, Southern University in New Orleans teaching, and he's now a doctor, but he's still Kevin to me. Well, it is really good to be with you all. I have missed, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I'm, I'm actually technically a member of this church. Uh, when I became an ordained missionary of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, I needed a, a Evangelical Presbyterian Church to join. And since there were none in New Orleans at that time, this was the only one in the area. And so I am, uh, I think, m- maybe not on the rolls any longer, but at one point I was a member of this church. So and I have, with joy I have watched as you have built 
this new building, which is gorgeous, by the way, um, and grown and changed and developed. And I, as, drove, as I drove across the lake today, uh, eagerly anticipated seeing many of you that I've known for years, like Henry and I have been friends for many, many years. So I'm glad to be here. I was out with friends not too long ago, going to the um, downtown Roosevelt Hotel to see the lights, the Christmas lights, right? And while there, ran across an old friend of mine, uh, Todd, who, um, who said, yeah, how you doing? And I said, how come this church never asked me to come back anymore? And Todd said, well, we'll rectify that. So here I am as a result of that chance encounter. So it was fun running across y'all over there. Today's sermon, I want to entitle uh, Praying for Justice. One of the great challenges in our world is understanding what, what justice means. And, um, and there's a lot of difference, depending on where you lie on the political spectrum, in terms of how you define justice. I don't want to get into the, the, the reads too much with that, but I do want to call us to pay attention to this really important feature of our Christian faith. Today's gospel, we hear about a widow who's pestering a judge for justice. Now, it's important to understand the context in which this story was told. A widow, during the time of Jesus' teaching, was utterly alone. In a patriarchal society where male protectors were everything, a widow like her would have been without any means of support. Without a male protector, this widow would have been understood to be on the societal margin, beyond the legal structures that safeguarded the rights of male citizens. Just look to the Middle East today. It's not much different. Women wear large, in certain places, veils that cover them from head to toe and cannot walk the streets without a male there to protect her or she'll be beaten or jailed. Consider, therefore, what Jesus is doing with this story. Instead of being a one-off, aberrant, teaching, something unusual, such messages of empowerment were a consistent theme of Jesus' teaching. Think about the populations that he brought as illustrations in his stories, in his preaching. Women, Samaritans, lepers, prisoners, tax collectors, those with disabilities, the poor. These were all marginalized groups in that society during Jesus' time. And yet he cast them as central and important actors in his sermons and in his work. Furthermore, he, when he spoke of them, by the way, I don't know if you've seen this new series on TV, The Chosen. Um, if, if you haven't, 
I recommend it to you. I, I kind of enjoyed seeing the story. And yes, it's a fictionalized account of what Jesus' teachings were all about. But it's also this kind of way of bringing to light the context in which the story is told. I'm sure many of you have seen this already. But I've enjoyed uh, kind of seeing the story and understanding um, the context in which Jesus' sermons were taught. I especially like the, the Matthew, the tax collector character, who's a bit of an obsessive, compulsive, um, and, and somewhere on the autism spectrum, perhaps, uh, he's a kind of a strange bird, but really, really brings his all to the message of Christ. Gives up his tax collecting post and his prestige and his gives away his house and everything just to follow Jesus. Jesus, that was had nothing to do with the sermon. I just kind of randomly thought of that and said it. Probably shouldn't have. Furthermore, <laughs> Jesus addresses issues of justice constantly when in talking about these marginalized citizens. You know, I have a, a PhD in urban studies, and one of the, study, the cities that we studied, of course, was New Orleans. And you know, New Orleans was originally founded in what we now know as the French Quarter. And then New Orleans began to expand outwards. And, and anytime you run across a cemetery in New Orleans, that was typically the outer edge of the city, Right? So you, you wouldn't bury your dead right in the middle of the city as we do today, but you'd bury your dead on the outer edge. And so you can see how the city gradually began to expand from the French Quarter out a little bit farther and then out farther. And those days, in the, in the days when the city was the, the, was the quarter, the lakefront, which is now kind of an upper crust place to live, but back in those days, the lakefront was where the marginalized went to live. It was camps in the swamps. And those who were different, unusual, who didn't fit with society, would go out to the swamps and live way out on the edges of society. That would be an example of marginalization, of people who don't fit in and therefore are on the fringes. Jesus talked about these people and challenged the status quo. He advocated for those that had been relegated to society's margins. What he was doing here was setting the stage for the new covenant. He was calling for a radical departure from the then current understandings of conventional morality. He even excoriated religious leaders of his time. Indeed, this was something new. This radical message of this would-be Messiah. Of course, now we know him to be the Messiah. But understand, in the context of the time, this guy's challenging the status quo, including the religious leaders. Nobody challenged the religious leaders. Nobody brought this kind of radical message unless they were a troublemaker who were going to be thrown into prison or executed by Rome. Indeed, this was something new and different. So challenging at that time that it resulted in Jesus' death like a common criminal, which was a shameful and retributive act for a radical message. 
Now, Christ's message was twofold. First, he was calling people to a relationship with God the Father. He was announcing that people didn't just have to have this kind of distant relationship with a God who was out there somewhere, but rather that one could have an intimate relationship with God the Father and thus be ushered into the abundant life that's characteristic of Christian faith. That as we invite Jesus into our heart, we then are, are on a path to a new kind of life, a new kind of existence, a relationship with the Father that is intimate and personal. This is one part of Jesus' message. Now, I want to take a, a moment there and stop as we talk about this, this part of, the, of Jesus' message, and that is that in the 70s, we began to define this, this relationship with Christ as overly personal. One would have a personal walk with a personal Savior and engage in personal devotions and have a personal quiet time and have a personal salvation. And we, we took this, this notion, the salvific message of God into a personal realm and overly personalized it, in my opinion. That's not to say that that part of the message isn't important. We need a personal relationship with God. We need a personal Savior. We need intimacy with God. That was part of Jesus' message. But there was a second half to Jesus' message. As taught in the Lord's Prayer, he was pointing to the new reality of God's kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the injustices that marred life on earth, a a, a world full of a sinful condition that kept people separated, rather than pure and faultless, that these injustices were part of the sin that marred God's plan for humanity. James wrote, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I think this is James 1, 26 to 27. I think that passage alone is one of the most important passages of Scripture because it points to this, this, this reality of God's kingdom. That yes, it's about keeping ourselves polluted from being polluted by the world, the personal message of the gospel, but it also compels us then to act in a hurting world, to change the structures and systems that hold our world in bondage. It is a both-and rather than an either-or reality. In other words, James was encapsulating the two realities of God's plan for humanity. That our relationship with God the Father, that personal, intimate walk with Christ, is enacted, acted out through justice to the marginalized. Too often, 
our religious denominations lean to one of these directions while ignoring the other, excluding the other, even kind of marginalizing the other. Some, as most evangelicals do, preference the personal salvific message of relationship with God, being justified, and then personally living a righteous life. Others, more mainline, or I would say, uh, you know, the Episcopalians, for example, uh, the Lutherans. Others prefer the justice message that calls us to usher in the kingdom of heaven via working to create a more just and equitable society that calls for those on the margins to be ushered back into relationship with those in favored positions. One side preferences individual personal holiness, while the other engages in corporate wholeness. The result is often division and mistrust far from Jesus' prayer that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, noticed, noted that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful in our work. Furthermore, he echoes James' twofold focus when he expresses his desire that all who have a relationship with God, personal holiness, be equipped for the good work, corporate wholeness, of ushering in the new, the new covenant or the new reality of Jesus' prayer that we be one with the Father and with each other. As per John chapter 17, verses 21 to 23. Like James, he is calling us to be God's people and to do God's work. In my profession of social work, we're called to be practitioners to think on three levels. There's the micro level, that's the level of relationship between two people. There's the meso level, which is the, the, the small group level, the family and maybe a like the, the, the Sunday school that I was just part of a few moments ago. Thanks for inviting me to, to participate. And then the macro level. And the macro level is community, society, and the world, the globe, right? What we do in Covington impacts China. Our, I don't know, car emissions or um, I, voting decisions, Right? In other words, the world is interconnected, and frankly, I, 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 as we, ush, you know, as we go out into space, the, the entire universe it depends on on kind of the choices we make daily here. So, this micro, meso, macro level focus, I want to bring that in for a few moments because in this focus, we situate as social workers our problems and challenges faced by individuals inside a structural context, a larger context. Yes, clients to social workers have personal problems. 
But those personal problems are exacerbated or made worse by societal injustices. We call this the person in environment theory of practice. So restoring a person to wholeness cannot be done simply by focusing on them and their needs without addressing the societal and global forces that deprive them of their rights and the goodies of society. True wholeness requires that we be made whole as an individual and be set free or brought back from the margins into the mainstream. In many ways, this this thinking, in fact, I just published an article in a journal called um, Social Work and Christianity that, that challenged the prevailing, one of the great ethicists in the field of social work said that social work ethics are shifting sand and that there are new things under the sun, which was a, a bit of a slap in the face to those of us who are believers and know our scripture. And so I challenged him by resituating social work values inside a historical biblical context and had a little pushback along the way. I tell you this to get you to understand that my profession of social work has some elements of importance to the Christian faith that I want to challenge us to think about. Christ's call throughout his ministry was to be personally transformed and to enact justice, both and rather than either or. So enjoying the abundant life that follows an individual relationship with Christ is fantastic. I, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I challenge you to find Jesus because the life that follows is wonderful. It changes everything. It's like our eyes become open and the chains fall off. I was in, in a prison in Georgia when I used to do prison work. And these guys stood up and sang that song, um, My Chains Fell Off. How does that song go? Uh, I was set free. You know the song, right? Um, it's a contemporary Christian song. And I'm watching them sing this song you know, in their prison orange jumpsuits, thinking, oh, my gosh. Even in prison, Jesus sets people It was an amazing moment. So we are called then to relationship with Christ, to be set free from our sin, to have intimacy with the Lord and Savior, with the the creator of the universe, the God of all. But then, once we have that abundant life, that great fortune, the pearl of great price, we are then called to share it with others, not to hoard it. This requires more than calling people simply to relationship with Jesus Christ. It, recall, it, it, it requires that we, that we bring people on the margins into relationship with each other. Right? True relationship cannot occur in a context of marginalization of inequality, of injustice, when people feel inferior and left out and denied. Rather, our personal relationship with Christ calls us to break down the structures that marginalize others. It calls us to to call to task 
the institutional barriers that limit abundant life for all of humanity. In other words, yes, we need a relationship personally with Jesus. And then, like Jesus, we need to challenge the status quo, not accepting this kind of societal evil that pushes certain people out and preferences others. So I want to join my voice with Paul. Boldly, I realize, because I am no Paul. And to call us to do three things. First, I want us to proclaim the good news. We, We have won the lotto. I mean, we are owners of the pearl of great price. We are the beneficiaries of a great fortune. We are joint heirs with the Son. Think about that for a moment. All that exists is part of our portfolio, so to speak. Joint heirs with the Son. Knowing the truth of the gospel... What a great privilege. We've been granted an excellent privilege of being made right with God. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've become part of the family of God. The very power that created the universe, the very power that holds all things together with his hands, all things from the tiniest micro particle that comprises the atom, that comprises the electron, that comprises the gluon, the smallest particle to the great vast reaches of space and farther than we can see, the, the hands that holds all that together lives in me and you. Think about that for a moment. What a great privilege we've been given. This is good news. This is news worth telling. Furthermore, we've been called to be Christians, which means literally little Christs or Christ followers. Jesus' message was that things need to be set right on earth. We are to proclaim justice. We are to fight against the powers of darkness that work to keep members of society separated from each other. We are to work toward making things right. We proclaim the good news that Christ has come to transform our lives individually, but also to transform the status quo to make things right in our world. He's come to undo the systemic and institutional structures that keep people separated from each other. He wants to set things right between humanity and heaven. That's what Jesus came to do. Racism and abuse and economic, grave economic inequality, deep embedded poverty. This was not God's plan for the world when he created Adam and Eve and said, all things are yours. Go and take, name the animals, eat the fruit, just not that one fruit. 
So we proclaim the good news that Christ has come to transform individuals and through us to transform the world. And I want you to think about this for a moment. When Christianity began to pervade the Roman Empire and, and then to spread through, uh, through the world, great things began to happen. We wouldn't have a Harvard or a Yale or a Princeton if it weren't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of those schools were founded in the name of Jesus. We wouldn't have hospitals or orphanages. We wouldn't have certain bodies of knowledge that we have. If it weren't for the gospel pervading our world, it wasn't just people who were transformed. It was society that was transformed. Second, we can proclaim all we want to, but it gets tiring after a while. After years of being a missionary, I found myself, especially in those years following Katrina, uh, when, when we struggled so hard, I found myself exhausted. And at some point, I knew it was time for me to move on. We need to persevere. We need to not give up. Dr. King once said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. To humanity, as we long for things to be made right in our lifetime, to those of us who are accustomed to getting a hamburger in a second at McDonald's, or a chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A, to those of us who want things in an instant, God's plan for humanity that's taken thousands of years seems interminable. We lose hope. We long for things to be made right now. But to God, who exists outside of time, a thousand years is the blink of an eye. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Furthermore, he taught us that like the widow, our constant and persistent requests for things to be made right will be heard and will be done. Our God, though, is not a fairy godmother who waves a wand or a genie who grants an instant wish, instant request. In our fast food culture, though, we've become accustomed to relatively short time frames between request and delivery. Persevere. Persevere in the work. Trust God our Father. Do not give up. As Paul told the Galatians, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, in God's timing, we will reap if we do not give up. Number three, pray. Should be number one, probably. I noticed that we read from the Book of Common Prayer. Another prayer in the Book of Common Prayer reads, it's the birthday, it's known as the birthday prayer. Oh God, our times are in your hands. We believe in a God that cares for the humanity that he created. He loves us. 
As Christians, we must trust that he wants the best for us, to prosper us, not to harm us. And by the way, prosper, taken out of its appropriate context, is problematic. He doesn't want to necessarily make us rich, but he wants us to have well-being, shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean peace. In the, in the, in the, the word shalom really means two things. The Jewish word shalom means both peace and well-being. That if we follow God, things will be made right, not just for us, but in our land. Remember, he will heal their land. So relying upon our work, apart from God's power, is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe, frankly, for schism. It's a recipe for burnout. Our power, as does our time, rests in God's hands. Like the judge in Luke 18, he hears us. Like the widow, we must not give up, but rather continue to petition the great judge, asking for justice, but also trusting in his timing. Jesus taught, will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Tap into God's power. Pray often for his kingdom to come, his will to be done. And trust that like the judge in Luke 18, he will hear our prayer. He will answer our prayer. And he will change our world and set things right. Heavenly Father, hear our prayers. We understand that our world is broken. We understand that our world is not what you created. We long for our heavenly home. We have these glimpses of heaven. And we struggle with our current reality because it's not what we know that you've written on our hearts. It's, it's not what we know that things should be. And we feel powerless like the widow without any paternal source of support. We feel powerless to bring about change. And yet you care about widows and orphans and lepers and prisoner and the handicapped. You care about those on the margins. You care about us. No matter how weak and small we feel, you hear our prayers. I ask, Lord, that you would call us to proclaim your good news. That not only does Jesus want to set us free personally, but he wants to set things right, freeing humanity from its bondage to injustice. I also ask, Lord, that we would continue to persevere like the widow, that we wouldn't give up, but that we would continue to pray, continue to speak, continue to call people to relationship with you individually and corporately. And finally, Lord, I ask that you would constantly remind us that we need to be in prayer talking to you when we are frustrated, when we are discouraged, when we want to give up. Remind us of the widow who wouldn't until she got justice.
We love you, Lord. We know that this world was created by you, and we know that it's been twisted and distorted by evil. And so we, Lord, as Christians, are willing to stand in the gap to pray for justice, to persevere, and to proclaim the good news. And may God grant that our prayers be efficacious as we seek to be more like him and to do the work required to set things right and to bring heaven to earth. Amen.